I want to welcome you again this morning to Cottondale Baptist Church. And um, this morning we're going to continue our series through the book of Galatians, which we've uh, put on hold for uh, several weeks now. Uh, But we're going to pick back up right where we left off um, in Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. But as we begin, let me... Uh, Pray for us. Let let us pray together one more time. You lift up your hearts with me. We're going to ask the Lord for help this morning. Uh, Father, we come now to the hearing of your word. I pray, Lord, that you would help me now to speak with truth and authority and clarity and humility and courage. Above all, Lord, we ask that you speak to us. Speak, Lord, as Samuel said, for your servant is listening. Lord, we ask that you would open our ears to hear and give us hearts to believe, trust, obey you as as those who have been called out of darkness into your marvelous light, as those who were slaves to the elementary principles of the world and are now called sons and daughters of the living God. Speak to us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, As I said earlier, you can turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4. And this morning, I want to talk a little bit about the, from this text, about the concept of adoption. The concept of adoption. You know, adoption is really one of the most uh, beautiful things that can be done, and and most people acknowledge that. Uh, Why is adoption such a powerful thing? Well, it is because that a, a person or, or a couple is choosing voluntarily to take upon themselves the responsibilities, privileges, and sacrifices necessary to care for a child who otherwise uh, should be more or less someone else's responsibility. In other words, they don't necessarily have direct responsibility for the care of this child, but they choose of their own accord to bear their responsibilities, privileges, and sacrifices to care for this child. Why is adoption such a beautiful thing? First of all, it's so beautiful because it's voluntary. It's a choice that is made on, on, uh, on behalf, uh, for the child, for, for uh for the, the, the orphan, as it were, uh, made by the, the, the couple, that's, that's, it's a voluntary choice. You, you, uh, nothing is compelling you to do that but your own kind will. And, uh, Lord willing, in Christian circumstances, by the Spirit of God within you. And secondly, it's so powerful because it's gracious. When someone adopts a child, they're not... Hopefully, they're not thinking uh, about the benefits of this child to them. The, the child hasn't done anything to earn their love. 
It's free. It's an act of grace. It's a free choice on behalf of those adopting, looking at this child, not on any basis of who they are or what they've done, but just looking on them in love and saying, I choose you to be mine. And and you accept them as part of your family. I think the reason why stories why adoption itself and stories of adoption are so powerful to us is because if we are in Christ, it's our story. We were orphans, helpless, undeserving. And God chose us. That's what I want to talk about today. So if you have your Bible and you're able and willing, please stand in honor of the reading of the Word of God From Galatians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Beginning in verse 1. Paul says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. The word of God. You may be seated. There's three things we're going to see from our text this morning. Number one, before Christ, we were slaves of the world. Number two, through Christ, we are saved from the law. And number three, in Christ, we are adopted by God. Before Christ, we were slaves of the world. Through Christ, we are saved from the law. In Christ, we are adopted by God. First, Before Christ, we were slaves of the world. Before Christ, we were slaves of the world. Now, it's been a little while, so I want to to remind you of the context, and and, um, and maybe if you've missed a couple sermons, this this will catch you up. Remember the context of the book of Galatians. There are false teachers, often known as Judaizers, who have infiltrated the churches who are in Galatia. And they are proclaiming to them a false gospel that it is not enough just to have faith in Christ to be a true Christian, a true child of God. Uh, But you must also keep the Jewish law. And they are undermining Paul's authority and Paul's message, Paul's gospel. So Paul, in the book of Galatians is taking great pains in order to defend himself and his message to the churches in Galatia in order that they might not be deceived 
by false gospel and false teachers. He defends his authority by proclaiming that he has an independent authority, even independent from the other apostles, because he received direct revelation from Jesus Christ himself on the road to Damascus. In fact, he didn't even see the other apostles except for twice in a period of 14 to 17 years. And when he did see them, they, all they did was confirm his message of uh, salvation by uh, grace alone, uh, through faith alone, in Christ alone, not by keeping the Jewish law. And, and on one occasion, P, uh, Paul writes, he even had to rebuke Peter, who was the, basically the de facto leader of the church. And he rebuked him on the matter uh, concerning whether the Gentiles should keep Jewish dietary laws. And, and from what we can tell, Peter repented of his hypocrisy. Then at the end of chapter 2, beginning in chapter 3, Paul begins his theological defense of his gospel. We don't have to keep the law to be saved because the law cannot save. The law condemns because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All the law does is show us how far short we fall of God's righteous standard. If the law could save, Paul says, then Christ died for no purpose. If you could save yourself, you didn't need Jesus. But Christ has died. Christ has risen because you can't save yourself. Because you can't keep the law. You needed a savior. And then he asked the Galatians, he asked the Galatians personally, he says, how, how did you receive the Spirit? How did you become a Christian? Did you receive the Spirit when you started eating kosher food or when you believed on Jesus Christ? When you believed on Jesus Christ, you received the Spirit. So we're saved by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. And then he says, he argues then that the law, the Old Testament law, Paul argues was temporary. God gave, the, gave a promise to Abraham 400 years before God gave the law to Moses. And the, the, therefore, the promise supersedes the law. The law does not come and nullify the promise. God's going to keep his promise uh, as a promise and not as, as something dependent upon the law. And so, rather, what the law did then, the law is not a bad thing, but rather what it did is it set the stage for and paved the way for God's fulfillment of the promise in Christ. That is, it, 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 it showed, just think about the history of Israel. What did they do over and over again? They failed, they rebelled, they fell away. The law came to set the stage for God to show us how much we needed a Savior. And it came to, to pave the way for Christ to come to fulfill God's promise to bless all the nations through Abraham. But And now that Christ has come, the law is no longer necessary. So, Paul is arguing and has argued that through Christ, everybody... You don't have to become a Jew first. Bless God. Everybody, Gentiles and Jews, through Christ, have full access to God and receive the promise that God made to Abraham. 
That's the argument Paul makes in, uh, in Romans chapter uh, 4. That if you, and in the book of Galatians, if you share in the faith of Abraham, you are son of Abraham. A inheritor of the promise. And so, in our text this morning, Paul is continuing his argument that the law is temporary. And so, think about the image that Paul uses in verses 1 through 3. He uses the image of an heir, right? So, an heir is someone who is going to receive an inheritance, right? But an heir, when they are a child, they're, based, they're functionally no different than a slave. In other words, they own the inheritance, the inheritance belongs to the child, but they do not have uh, the ability to freely uh, exercise it and use and spend, as it were, that inheritance until they reach the age of maturity. So even though they're an heir, while they're a child, they're no different, Paul says, than a slave. And so Paul's main point here is that both the Jews, while they were under the law, and, and the Gentiles, before Christ came, he says in verse 3, uh, we were enslaved. We were children enslaved, he says, to the elementary principles of the world. To the elementary principles of the world. Now, this is kind of the main point of what he's saying. And it, it, this is it's really hard. To, scholars don't know really what this means. The NIV, elementary principles of the world, what does that mean? The NIV translates it elemental spiritual forces. The New Living Translation translates it basic spiritual principles. The, the New American Standard translates it elemental things. They can't agree on how to translate it because it, it's, it's hard to know what Paul means by elemental principles. But I think we can, we can shed some light on it. Part of our text today was verses 8 through 11. Look at, look, at that, look at that text again. Let's read it again. He says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those by which nature, by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to become once more? You observe... Days and months and seasons and years, I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. When Paul says observe days and months and seasons and years, almost certainly what he's talking about is the, the, the Sabbath and the Jewish laws and the Jewish festivals and the Jewish feast days and the Jewish holidays. In other words, the, the people of Galatia, are, are, what, he, what he's talking about is they're trying to become Jews again. Now, in Colossians chapter 2, it's a long text, but we need, we need to read it as well to get a sense of elemental uh, principles. In Galatians 2 verse 8, Paul writes this. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits, that's the same word, of the world and not according to Christ. Verse 16 Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or new moon or Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels going on in details about visions. 
puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and held together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Okay. Think about what Paul just said. And think about, so what does it mean that Paul says we are enslaved to the elementary principles? Well, my take is this. My take is that enslavement to the elementary principles means the basic posture of the human heart that wants to relate to God or relate to the world on the basis of mere external action and not a change of heart. And not a change of heart. Think about it. We have to, we have to try to understand what he's saying because he's not saying that just the, the Gentiles were enslaved to the elemental principles, but he also says that the Jews were too. That means... That means it's something more fundamental. That's what elementary means, elemental. It's a fundamental principle. That is, I think, that the fundamental way that people, that you, that people apart from God try to relate to God is try to relate to him on the basis of mere external things. I go to a pagan temple so that if I offer a sacrifice in this pagan temple, then maybe God will make my crop grow. Or maybe he'll give me a child. Or, or if you're a Jew, if I go and say my Jewish prayers and go to the, the Jewish temple and offer these offerings, he's going to bless me in this world. It's a way of relating to God that just focuses on what I do externally in order to make God meet my ends for myself. It's a way of relating to God that just focuses on external behavior in order to have God serve you rather than you serve God. Everybody does this. The Jews, uh, Jesus often condemned the Pharisees. He told the Pharisees, you tithe your herbs. You tithe from your herb garden, but you neglect justice and mercy and love. You know, when we went to Madagascar a couple years ago, we look at their worship, they worship their ancestors, and we think, man, we think, we think, man, how uh, primitive, how primitive these people are. They're worshiping their ancestors, they have witch doctors, and all this pizzazz. But listen, what I learned in Madagascar is that they are exactly like us. They just think the world works differently. They think if I offer sacrifices uh, to my ancestors, I won't get sick. We think if we wash our hands, we won't get sick. You're still doing the same thing. You just think the world works differently, but your heart's the same. You see? They're exactly the same. It's a way of, it's the elemental way that people try to relate to God. Even atheists today, I think would fall under this category that Paul is saying of elementary spiritual principles. They think the world works a certain way. 
And they're trying to access that for their benefit without addressing the issues of their heart. That is, even atheists will say, if I get the right job, if I find the right spouse, if I make the right, of money, right amount of money, if I have the right amount of sex, if I, get what, if I get what I think in the world, if I work, I might not go to a pagan altar, but I'll, I'll go a, th- a hundred hours a week to my job. Because if I do that, it will satisfy the deepest longings of my heart. But it can't. They never get to dealing with, act- with their actual heart. Let me tell you something. Lots of people do this in church. They come to church every Sunday, and they may even pray their prayers and read their Bible some and and put a tip in the offering plate. But it's not out of love for God. It's not out of love for God. It's out of tradition. It's out of... If I do this, then, then maybe God will bless me. If I do this, I, or, or I got to keep up appearances because I got to keep up my reputation in the community or whatever it is. There's, there's no love for God. There's no affection for God. There's no zeal for God. I want to please God. I want to bless God. I want to meet God. It's just going through the motions. It's the elementary way that people try to relate to God. And Paul says, Christ has come to set you free. Christ has come to set you free from you trying to save yourself. God has sent Christ to save you from yourself. So that you no longer have to try to climb the mountain up to God. God has come down the mountain to you. So that you... So that you would not relate to him as a slave to a taskmaster, but as a child to a father. Before Christ came, we were slaves of the world, never dealing with our heart. But Christ comes and he, he addresses the issues of our heart and says, look to me as a child to a father. So before Christ, we were slaves of the world. But number two, through Christ, we are saved from the law. Through Christ, we are saved from the law, verses 4 and 5. When the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. The law, Paul says, was a temporary measure. That there was a there was a time when the law's time would be up. And, and Paul calls it the fullness of time. A time in his infinite wisdom, at the climax of human history, when God would fulfill his promises. What does the fullness of time mean? Well, there's different ways to think about it. A common way to think about it is, is to look at, humanly speaking, and in terms of world history and world culture, to talk about the real, incredibly impeccable timing in which God sent Christ into the world. It was during the time of what was called the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, in which Roman rule had created a relative time of peace 
and economic prosperity and stability. The Roman roads were remarkably good for that day, so travel was relatively easy. Uh, Koine Greek was a common language spoken throughout most of the Roman Empire. And so, humanly speaking, it was, a, it was the impeccable time for Christ to come because it enabled the apostles to proclaim the gospel over the entire Roman world very quickly. And not, not only that, but because of Roman oppression of the Jews, the Jews were at the height of messianic fervor. They wanted the Messiah to come. They were desperately looking for him to come. They just missed him when he did. So that's one way to talk about the fullness of time. But really, I think Paul is thinking not in terms of human history, although that might be part of it. But I think Paul, when he says fullness of time, is thinking about... Is thinking about the whole timeline of human salvation from Adam all the way to Christ. That is, that in Paul's mind, when he thinks of the fullness of time, I think he's thinking about this. He's thinking that God had made enough promises. God had given enough covenants. God had set into place all the images and shadows and types that he was going to set into place. Enough innocent lambs have died. Enough sacrifices had been made. Enough information had been given so that when he sent the Christ, they would be able to see it. All that God had planned to do to set the stage, to make the way, to pave the way for the Christ had come, for Christ to come, was ready. So then a child was born, John the Baptist. He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. And then all that was left for a virgin to bear a child. The son of God. At the fullness of time, God sent his son into the world. The Bible, Paul says that Jesus was born of a woman, born under the law. When Paul says born of woman, what does that mean? I just, I have to, I just can't help but think that he's talking about because that, that phrase is not incredibly common in the Bible, born of woman. I think he's thinking of Genesis 3.15. God, we talk about it a lot. God told the serpent that there will be a seed of woman who would crush the head of the serpent. Jesus was born of woman, born under the law. What does that mean? What's the law? The law was the burden that was too great for you to bear. So Jesus Christ came in and he came under the law and he picked up the law and put it on his shoulders and took it off of yours. Jesus came under the law. He bore the law. He bore the weight and the penalty of the law so that you could be set free. 
Because you could not keep the law, Christ came to keep it for you. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The lawgiver came down to live under the law, and he came to bear the... He, he put the, the law on his shoulders, and then he took it with him to the cross. And he bore the curse of the law so that you wouldn't have to. And he redeemed you from what the law demanded by paying for it himself. Why, the Bible says, so that you might receive adoption as sons. The purpose of our redemption is our adoption. What does this mean? I want you to think about the fact that history hinges on a man named Jesus Christ. It's true. They literally literally divided history, B.C. and A.D. They changed the name now, Common Era and something else, Common Era. But everybody knows what it means. They split history based around the life of the man named Jesus Christ. Why? Because the people understood what had happened. God invaded the world and changed forever the way people now can relate to him. If human history hinges around the life of one man, let me ask you a question. Does your life hinge around this same man? Does it? I fear that a lot of people, if, it, if your life is not part of this story, you're living for the wrong story. In other words, hear me now. Everyone else is playing football and you're playing ping pong. What are you doing? You're wasting it. If you're not living for God, you're living for a made-up story that's not real, that's not reality. And you're piddling your life away for things that absolutely don't matter. If you're not living for God. Because all of human history and the human story centers around one man. And if our story is not his story, we're living in a fantasy world. And we'll waste our life. But we, at the fullness of time, Christ has come. So that we could see what God is working in the world and center our lives around what everything else is centering around. The Son of God. So before Christ, we were slaves of the world. Through Christ, we were saved from the law, finally. In Christ, we are adopted by God. In Christ, we are adopted by God. Verses 6 and 7. Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Christ came so that we might receive redemption as sons. How do we know How do we know that we have been adopted into the family of God? What's it say? The Spirit 
of God has been sent into your heart. That's how you know. Romans 8, verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. How do you know that you are a child of God? If you are led by the Spirit of God, that's how you know. Are you led by the Spirit of God? It's true. There is is a subjective sense of assurance that God gives us by His Spirit. And if you don't know it, it's hard to describe. But it's just this sense that despite all your weaknesses and failures, you know you love God and you know God loves you. But let me give you some pointers to how you know. When the Spirit of God lives in you, when you hear someone else praise the name of the Lord Jesus, your heart leaps within you. You feel it. When you hear someone, when you hear that someone that you know who is a follower of Christ, and you hear that they have fallen in to some kind of serious sin. It is that sense of terror and fear and grief in your own heart that you get. The fear of your own sin, the fear that you have, that you don't want to, to do what they've done to the Lord. It is the cry in your heart that God is your Father. It is the It is the work of God that that compels you to do something that you know you shouldn't do, even when no one else is looking and you know you'll never get caught. It is the thing that makes you walk by a person and then the Spirit convicts you and you turn around and go back. It is is the Spirit that, that you have sinned and you know you need to confess and repent that sin to somebody and it's eating you up on the inside and then you... Finally, the Spirit moves you to confess it. All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And Paul says, through Christ we are sons and no longer slaves. And I want you to think about the language that Paul uses. Paul says that through Christ we are sons. Why is this? I think, it, I think in the context it's pretty clear that it's actually intentional. You know, this, this language kind of, you know, feminists don't like this language. But it's intentional. Why would Paul say all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God? 
Because in Paul's day, only the sons would receive the inheritance. But guess what Paul was saying? Paul was saying, therefore, that then if you are in Christ, then you are a son. Whether you're male, female, Jew, Greek, it doesn't matter. You, regardless of your gender, regardless of your ethnicity, regardless of anything, if you are in Christ, you are a son. That is, you are an inheritor of God's promise, and you have full access to all the privileges of being in him. Paul actually uses the language to show how Christ is the equalizer of man. That regardless of who you are in Christ, you are and a son, a, a one who is destined to receive the inheritance. In Christ, we are adopted by God. That means then that if the Spirit of God lives in you, that means that God is your Father. It means that God is your father. That means the fundamental, the fundamental way that we relate to God is not as a taskmaster to a slave. Although the, the gospel writers have no problem identifying as slaves of God, in a sense we are. But what he's saying is that the fundamental way we relate to God is as a son to a father. There's no other, there's no, there's no better way to describe it because if you are a true son, you both love your father and you fear your father. It's the perfect relationship. Paul, Paul says you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. I'm telling you, lots of people, and we talked about this before, lots of people in their relationship with God, they don't live as father to son, but as slave to taskmaster. God to them is nothing more than this angry man who is constantly eyeballing them, waiting for them to step out of line so he can wrap them on the knuckles. And that's their relationship to God. If that's the way you view God, and I've been there, I'm telling you, you, have, you haven't yet understood what it means for God to be your father. We, the Bible says, we have been... Adopted by God, a man has no problem utterly casting out a slave, but he'll always love his son. If we understand this, we'll, we'll know what John is saying in 1 John chapter 4 when he says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. When we really grasp that God is our Father, it casts away fear. Fear of punishment, fear of judgment, and replaces it with hope. I want you to think about this. The infinite, omnipotent, eternal God of the universe, through Jesus Christ, relates to you as a father relates to a son. You know... There's been, there's been a time or two when something, something around the house will break. I'm not really Mr. Fix-It exactly, but, um, but something around the house will break. Something that clearly I can't, I, I would have no ability to fix, but it'll break. And what happens? Finn will pick it up 
and bring it to daddy. Why? Because daddy can fix everything. Something in a child innately knows that daddy can fix everything. Let me tell you something. Daddy can fix everything. And if the spirit is in you, he is your father. And you are his son, his daughter. Little kids, little kids, they don't worry. My son's not worried about anything. Except maybe when he's going to get his next cookie, okay? He's not worried about anything. Why? Because he just knows that daddy will take care of it. Why do you fear? Why are you anxious? Why are you afraid? Don't you know daddy can take care of it? Abba. You know that's what it means? It's not just father. Abba. Jesus Jesus used this term and no other no nobody used it for God. They had all kinds of terms they would use for God. Nobody used the word Abba. Why? Because it was a term of endearment. Daddy can fix anything. So what do you do? What do you do? You say, I've made a mess. I've made a mess of my life. Take your life and take it to Daddy. Take it to Abba. He'll fix it. Before Christ, we were slaves of the world. Through Christ, we are saved from the law. In Christ, we are adopted by God. I close this morning with just a simple question. Does the Spirit testify with your spirit that you are a child of God? If it doesn't, I pray today that you might know what it means for God to be your father. It'll change everything. If you want to talk about how you can know God as your father, I'll be here as we sing our last song. Let's pray together. Lord, there is none like you in heaven or on earth. And yet, Lord, you do not count yourself so high that you stand high and lofty and far off, but you, through Christ, have come down to us. You called Abraham your friend. You called David a man after your own heart. And in Christ, Lord, you call us sons daughter. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to remember what it means that we are children of the Most High God. And if there is any in here today, Lord, who does not know you as Father, I pray that they would know the hope and the joy that only you can give. And we ask these things